listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In 2017, Caroline Wright was working on her third cookbook and raising two kids with her husband. Life was busy and full, and only the way it can be when you have two kids under the age of five. Then one day, everything changed. It was the day she was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which is an aggressive brain tumor, and given a year to live. As a writer and a cook, Caroline focused her energy both on writing and her children, Theodore and Henry, who were just one and four when she was diagnosed. After surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and radical changes to her lifestyle and diet, Caroline is now considered cancer-free. Since her diagnosis, she's written a memoir about her experience based on the CaringBridge site she used to keep family and friends updated. She also wrote and published a beautiful children's book, Lasting Love, as a way to help her children know that no matter what happens, her love will always be with them. Caroline, thanks so much for being on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when I was preparing for our conversation, I was thinking about how often when someone is diagnosed with an illness and they're going through treatment, like the only conversation they end up having is, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How's treatment? How's your prognosis? And so I wanted to start a little bit differently and like not do the stereotypical and just ask like, what are the three most important things running through your mind lately? Ooh, thank you. Um, it's refreshing to have different questions. You know, you're right. A lot of people do start from that place um, to quickly answer your question. I'm cancer free and, you know, I am in a really good place. So that's really nice, I guess, for the underpinning of this conversation. Um, what's most important to me right now, after my diagnosis, nothing else mattered really other than my kids. And then second one would be being really present. I've seen, you know, this veil of illusion that we all have that health really is, you know, I was under the impression that I was healthy before I was diagnosed. I am a food professional. I ate really well. I ate all the sorts of green vegetables and I like have trained for half marathons and done things like that. And I was 32 and diagnosed with a glioblastoma. So I don't know. I try, just try to stay present, present and grateful for the moment that I'm in. And I guess gratitude would be my third one is I think it's really easy, especially as a patient to get bogged down in the ways that your body has betrayed or failed you. And what really helped me through my treatment and I still carry with me today is finding the ways that my body is strong, you know, and being grateful for all the things that it, that I asked it to do um, in kind of an inhuman circumstance. And I think that that's a really powerful powerful thing. And I, I still try to do that every day, regardless of my treatment. Yeah, that was something I was thinking about too, that oftentimes like when a diagnosis first happens or, you know, a death first happens, a grief occurs, those things like gratitude and perspective come so into focus. And then over time they start to 
get lost again a little bit. And I was just wondering how, how that's been for you, if it feels like they're just as present as they were right at the start of your process, or if you've noticed that they sort of like morph back into day-to-day life again. I do think that that's just human you know, I have two kids, so I there was the poetry of like thinking about them every day and <laughs> writing for them every day. But no, you know, I like wipe their butts and make their lunches, <laughs> and you know, so you do return to regular life. And I do th- feel like there is a tendency to slide back into you know being complacent or whatever. I, I don't think life is always you know poetic and able to have access to all of this deeper meaning, but it is a practice. Um, I really do. I do practice gratitude. I think about it all the time. It is it is not lost on me because the odds of my being here, the odds of my being well with my cancer is like a fraction of 1%. And I that is something that I hold with me every day. And I'm grateful for even all the stupid stuff because that's part of being a mom and that's part of being a human is that things, you have bad days and that's just part of it. Um, and I also know that my cancer could come back at any time. I have a cancer with an 100% recurrence rate over time. So that really like helps, <laughs> helps keep things real, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you start off saying that in, in this moment, you're cancer free. And, you know, there's so many different terms floating around for folks who are have had an illness or dealing with an illness, you know, things like survivor and fighter and in remission. What are the words that you use to describe yourself? Well, you know, I think about this all the time because I am a writer and semantics really do matter to me. And even when I was sick, or like when I was in treatment, but I didn't feel sick. But like everybody kept telling me basically that I was dying all the time, but I I didn't feel like I was dying. I thought about this all the time, you know, like what is it? And it has kind of shifted. I guess I now say that I was diagnosed with cancer. That feels like true because that's like a scientific thing. And then I say, you know, the words remission and such aren't really available to me with my cancer. I don't know if it's just because it's my cancer I don't know, maybe remission implies some sort of safety or something. And Mm. they never see me that way. I'm monitored every four months. Um, Survivor feels for me personally, I don't know. It's hard because other people use it very proudly and I'm very glad for them. But um, for me, I'm surviving and I'm very proud to be here right now. But survivor, I don't know. It seems like you've gotten somewhere, you've arrived someplace. And I really don't feel like I've arrived anywhere. I feel like I have to be just as vigilant as I ever was. I just am not taking chemo every day or being in radiation every day. Not, not much has changed other than just having to wipe more butts and stuff like that. Like I said, um, you know, other than returning to regular mom life, hashtag mom life. So you're on, on guard, butt wiping. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, I, I guess I just say that I'm cancer free and I don't know, I still, I guess I'm still technically a cancer patient, but I've never really felt defined by my cancer because I'm such an outlier. I was from the beginning, you know, I was 32 when I was diagnosed, which is about 30 years and a female, which is like not, you know, the typical guy, John McCain died from my cancer and he's actually kind of like the specimen of Mm. the patient, um, like 
kind of like old white guys, like who has all the data, right? And so when I was diagnosed at 32, um, I actually was totally not, I wouldn't say relieved, obviously I was very scared, but um, I just was like, well, this is so fluky that either I'm going to die right away and that's just like what it is or none of the data that they have has anything to do with me. So I might as well just like make it up what I'm going to do. That's what I did. I followed all their directions and orders and I like did everything that I was supposed to do. But I also just like listened to myself really, really strongly and discovered all kinds of like hope and strength with myself because no one else was giving me any. Yeah. So the words that people use can be so personal the context in which the diagnosis occurs can be so personal. And then the treatment decisions in a way, even though oftentimes they provide you with like, here's what we do. There's still a sense of being able to choose what is right for you. And, and how did you go about choosing the, the course of your treatment? And how did that, how did you interact with your medical team about those decisions? Well, I was wide open and I really felt strongly that they are experts in treating my cancer but they are not experts at me and my body. I saw it as a divided thing. I let them tell me all about my cancer and I trusted them inherently. And I like, did not fight them on like, you know, what kind, I didn't do any research. So I left all the research up to my husband and my I really smart people around me. My husband's a lawyer and my dad is really brilliant. So I um, and my mom and I let, let them put all their worry into behind closed doors research all the clinical trials and do all this stuff that like responsible people do. And then so for, for me, I just thought it was my job to like take care of me and like listen to what I needed and just like try and survive. I like, you know, changed my diet right away. I just wanted to give my body the best tools um, that it could to use the medicine that the doctors were giving me because I figured other 32 year olds have cancer cells in their body probably but they don't grow a giant tumor in their brain so like obviously something has gone awry in my body maybe just quieting it down and giving it space to heal is really what it what I need to do so I like I went to yoga three times a week I um did a lot of energy work and basically excused myself from every single, you know, commitment, basically stopped everything I was doing. I was actually working on my third cookbook at the time. I handed that to a ghostwriter. I stepped out of being a primary caregiver to both of my boys, even though I did, you know, all the lovey cuddly stuff. I didn't do all the like all the wiping the butt stuff. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a theme, but I, I just didn't. <laughs> I was really careful about how I live my life and all, all decisions. I like really managed my emotions very differently. And I wrote every single day because they told me based on where my tumor was that I wasn't supposed to be, they were shocked that I could like walk or talk or anything. Cause it was like right on my motor cortex. And I was like driving around and all this stuff. <laughs> I had this huge tumor <laughs> on my motor cortex. I don't know exactly how I ended up so unscathed, but I figured like, well, maybe it's like a use it or lose it situation. And also writing makes me feel like me. And so much of my life was infused into making me feel like kind of like a sum of my parts and cells and blood and stuff. So I just really felt writing was like the thing that really tapped into my humanity. Then eventually this blog I was writing, um, this Caring Bridge blog, and eventually it um, sort of morphed after my diagnosis, started writing about my experience for my boys to turn into a, a memoir. 
so that if I died when the doctors said I would, um, you know, they would have their mother's voice stored someplace and so that they would know mom did everything she could, but you know, she just wasn't lucky. But that's the story I wanted them to have access to. Yeah, as you were sharing that piece of kind of the decisions around treatment and how you really scaled back on so many things in a way to create the most optimal habitat in your body for receiving the medicine and receiving the treatment and the healing. It just made me think about that idea of gratitude again, to have had access to the resources to be able to do those things, to have people to come in and help care for your kids and family. And, you know, just think about so many people who, who might be listening and being like, I, I couldn't do all that. Like I didn't have that opportunity. Oh no, absolutely. I was acutely aware of that even at the time that like I would be in radiation waiting for my daily radiation. So my track was like, you know, three months of daily radiation. And so I would go in there and I would like sit next to people that were like clocking in out of work to come to radiation and then leaving. But because I'm a cookbook author, you know, I make my own schedule. So I didn't have like a day job to, to, you know, have to take a sabbatical from. And my parents moved immediately actually like we're in Hawaii um, like as semi-retired people and they like got on a plane. They had come, come through Seattle that day. I called them and told them that I, the MRI revealed a tumor. And my dad was like, okay, we're, we'll be on the first flight out tomorrow morning. When he arrived the next day, he like called the realtor in Florida and put his house on the market um, from wow. a distance. And the only time he really left um, was to like go and, and settle it. And then they like lived in a 300 square foot apartment, like right around the corner from my house. Their assumption was, um, you know, based on what the doctors were saying is that they were like going to have to settle in Seattle to help raise my boys. It was just incredible. The groundswell of people that we had, our community. And, um, I'm completely aware. I actually celebrate every year. Um, my, my, uh, rebirthday, which is my craniotomy. I have a big party and I invite all like my whole community in and I like cook all this food and I'm completely aware that I'm only here today because people you know bent over backwards and this is not a situation that you know it's an actual miracle but I don't think it's like just a miracle of my body I really think that it's you know came from a lot of different people and I'm incredibly fortunate and speaking of your kids, Henry and Theo, you know, you mentioned that that they were just at the front of everyone's focus throughout this. How how did you all like support them, explain this to them? That's I mean, it's one of the questions that comes up from so many folks who call us of like, how do I talk to my kids? And I know, you know, Theo was only one, but now that he's a little bit older, like, how did that unfold? That's an excellent question. Um, and it's something that I'm super passionate about now. Um you know, we didn't know what to say, just like everybody, because, you know, you're diagnosed with this thing and you still like, you have to go home and put your pants on. You can't like, you're still like a mom. And, you know, the world doesn't actually stop, even though like when someone hears of your cancer, it like ruins their day and they can't think of anything else and whatever, you know, but, you know, being a mom, you still, I don't know, it's really hard. You, you're, you're doing everything kind of with with the magnifying glass to you and, and you have to make decisions not only about yourself but about other people kind of in tandem so with our kids we did sort of very the only research i did was on this subject and a, a really good friend and it wasn't even really research a friend um, handed us a parenting book about like how to parent a child through a parent's terminal illness 
the the premise is very very strong um it is tell your kids the developmentally appropriate truth like all the truth that you have and then um let them ask all the questions that they want and only tell them what you know don't speculate don't give hope so just tell them the facts and so we were we were honest with henry and theodore theodore as you said correctly is like yeah he was one um and mostly like the understanding he had of what was wrong was based on like what was happening in front of him maybe like mommy not doing all the same things you know he, it was more just like perception um, but Henry had the actual knowledge of what was going on you know like where my treatment was and um, you know I, sh I took him into my radiation room had him at like if he wanted to ask me any questions or anything um, but my son Henry is this is mom brag. Um, he's, he's like, he's really emotionally intelligent and really perceptive and very precocious. It, it was very clear that he, he, he really did understand quite a lot of what was going on. That's why I wrote the book for them. Lasting love is because that was the perfect embodiment of this like logic that we were telling them, which is, you know, no matter what happens to mommy's body, you know, like I'm going to fight really hard and I have the best doctors on my side, but there's a chance I could still die because I have this, you know, really scary, Henry called it a weed in the garden of my brain. And like, that, that mm. is what it is. It's like a really aggressive thing that's, you know, out of my control. The doctors removed it, but you know, I have not great odds on my side. So it was pretty tricky there, obviously explaining it to them for a while. But so what we were saying to them is that no matter what mommy does, I, I might die and that's out of my control. But you know, the love that we have is completely tangible. It's with with us forever. That can't go away just because mommy's gone. What made me sad as a mom, as I was like, if I die and I don't get the chance to like live with them, this is going to be their narrative of who their mom was. It's this like poor woman who died, you know, and, and, you know, not the woman who like, cooks for them and sings and has dance parties and like is just over the top and ridiculous like that's the memory that I wanted them to have of me like you know the special dates but that didn't, I didn't have the time to like install that in them so lasting love is this idea where um I'll this is I'm now I'm talking about my book it's when a parent is diagnosed with a terminal illness, the hospital sends them home with a magical creature. And then the magical creature is a outward representation of the dying parents love. So in the beginning of the book, you see like the mom and the son and the creature, like, you know, make spaghetti together or like pick flowers together or paint together. And then there's an image of the mom and the creature and the son reading a book at bedtime. And she looks sort of, um, different and weaker and then the next page turn is the dad the son um like spreading the mom's ashes and it's flowing directly into the creature and that's the middle of the book and then the rest of the book is the son and the creature doing the same things that the son and the mom used to do so like making spaghetti um the creature then becomes a representation of like grief and memory I was hoping that the creature in the case of my personal family, the, the creature would represent keeping me along with them. It's interesting too, that as a, as an author, it's almost, as you were talking, I was imagining you like creating a character 
you being yeah. the character, the creature being the character and how important it was to you to be able to create a narrative for them to know of you that was much more than just that, that single story of a poor woman who got diagnosed with cancer. A hundred percent. That's what it was. And also making this book, you know, I, it was, I was creating something really powerful, like actually creating hope, you know, for myself, like literally. Mm. And, um, it made me feel like normal me, you know, like not sick, this is just, I just, this is just my subject. Like I almost was like writing about someone else and it was just, you know, doing a really good job, creating something super beautiful, collaborating with an artist. I was like living my best life. <laughs> just like also happened to be dying at the time, um, which is just crazy. Everything about it was really, really powerful. What are some things that Henry and Theo did or said that surprised you in, in their like integrating this reality? Henry and I had lots and lots of conversations all the time. I mean, what would surprise me most is like basically kids don't process grief the same way that adults think that it looks like, you know, like it'll come mm. out randomly. You'll think he's like not thinking about it. And then like walking up the stairs, he would say things like, you know, mama, I'll always love you even if you die. And, you know, like you're just standing there walking upstairs <laughs> to go get dinner or something, you know. It's, so things like that would happen often. The thing actually that surprised me most was that Theodore, and this only happened recently, the other day I was getting out of the shower and he was like on the toilet doing his morning thing. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the thing that calls forth my job later. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so he was sitting there and we, our eyes connected through the mirror. I'm like kind of bald out of the shower. Um, and so Theodore on the toilet looks at me and he's, he was like, mommy, you make me sad. And I was like, why are you sad? What's going on? And he said, I don't like it when you have no hair. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, mommy had no hair um, for about a year when I was in treatment. He said, and I'll never forget it. He mm. said, yes, you went away when you had no hair. And I, it was such, it like completely floored me because, you know, all this research and everybody was telling me oh Theodore and we had even been telling ourselves that like Theodore was too young to really know anything that was going on I just didn't know that he would have memory of me like that so much um, or access it so it was very shocking to me to have him articulate that experience to me and now that you're in this place of being cancer-free no longer doing chemo or radiation, but still, you know, on guard, as you mentioned, what are some of the questions or things that Theodore and Henry, what are they asking? What are they sharing with you? Um, you know, less, but I, 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 and I ask them, you know, every now when I have my MRIs, I say like, well, Henry, do you, do you want to know, or Theodore, do you guys want to know what the doctor said to me? Or do you want to see pictures or and they say no, mm. um, because Henry's like, well, if something was happening, I'm sure you would tell me that's what he said the last time. And I was like, yeah, that's true. You know, Duh, you guys. Like, so if you don't tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, they aren't worried. Uh, Henry's not worried. Um, you know, I still go through the process of like telling his teachers and stuff so that like, just in case I had a bad MRI or something that people are on call to jump back into action. Right now, I'm just like regular old mom and kid life. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they're able to be in the present as well. And, and knowing that you and probably your family always have some of those like contingency plans for just in case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes up like little things. Um, you know, for example, my son Theodore has been recently obsessed with roly polies. And the other day he put a roly poly in his pocket, his new friend. And then he was like super sad that night when he discovered that it was dead in his pocket. And he was like really grieving and crying. So, you know, things like that come up. And then we end up talking about them at like the dinner table of things die. And, and then like Henry, he'll, he'll say things like, yeah, you know, mommy almost died. So it'll come up probably like a couple times a year, but it's not like it was, you know, every single day or anything. Caroline, you talked a lot about writing and how important it was for you as a way to stay connected to like your core identity as you were going through this process. And now you've got Lasting Love. The children's book is out in the world. Your Caring Bridge site got turned into a memoir. And so your story has been shared pretty far and wide. What has it been like for you to to have that out in the world? You know, it's pretty surreal. Um, but again, it's an honor um, because, you know, because I'm standing in this amazing place of privilege and, I don't know, unexpected health. Um, I feel like it is, responsibility is too strong of a word, but like, it's a, it is a really a great honor to be able to share my story and have other people like experience the parts that are meaningful to them and like put them in their pockets. And like, it's really profound to be a part of like the most tender part of other people's stories. I don't, I, it, it helps alleviate survivor's guilt, I guess I should mm. say, um, mm -hmm. because I feel like I'm doing something um, that I really believe in um, for other people. And that my children are watching me not only, you know, survive this cancer and not, but just also not be afraid to tell, you know, I think that telling my story, it's not like people have called me brave or whatever. And I don't really don't see it as that. I see it as like, no, my community lifted me up and now it's time to lift up my community. It just speaks to like the power of being a recipient of support and then to be in a place where you're able to provide that support back either to the people who gave you the support or to others who are in need. Right. But people who don't actually even know how to ask, like ask for the help that they need. That's like, that's the position of being like a newly diagnosed parent is that you have no idea what, to, what to do. You need people to just like hand you a book that makes sense. Well, I am very grateful for your being here and for the work that you're putting out into the world and your way of trying to provide that support to other people who are in that newly diagnosed, totally lost, don't know what to do next place. So I am going to put uh, links to find you and your work in our show notes. What would you say is the best place for people to go if they want to connect with you? Um, my website, because actually when I was diagnosed, one of the about face things, like literally right after I gave up my book from um, to a ghostwriter, I pulled myself off of like Facebook and social media and stuff, much to the chagrin of all of my publishers and editors <laughs> and stuff. But um, so I write a monthly newsletter. So um, you can sign up on my website, carolinewrightbooks.com. And that's pretty much the long and short of my, my outreach efforts. And, you know, I, I respond to people who write me there and yeah, that's it.
So <laughs> listeners, it's a uh, one-stop shopping and I'll put that yes. link in the, in the show notes. Well, Caroline, thank you again for spending time talking with me today and being part of Grief Out Loud. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's just so amazing, um, you know, talking to you and you are helping tell my story. I really appreciate it. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community, knowing that you're out there, you know, taking in what we're sharing and that hopefully it's making a difference for you is super meaningful. And if you have an idea for a topic or someone who might make a great guest, you can reach out to us at help at Dougie.org. We are produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. We're a nonprofit here in Portland. And we are 100% community funded. So if you ever find yourself drawn to supporting our work in that way, you can donate online at dougy.org forward slash grieve out loud, and then just click the blue donate button. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>